Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. You go to parties or events in Silicon Valley, and VCs and bankers were telling me they'd throw huge amounts of money at me if I did the usual thing and monetize stuff, as everything that could be. And I decided I wouldn't do that because I learned in Sunday school to know when enough is enough. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry. Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. My name is Tara Hernandez. I have spent around 30 years evolving ways for companies to develop and shift software. Back in the day, I helped launch Mozilla.org and have been a firm proponent of open source ever since. I also think smart companies understand the business value of a diverse employee base. I'm currently working at MongoDB as Vice President of Developer Productivity Engineering. I'm a contributor to the Continuous Delivery Foundation and a proud member of the board for Women Who Code. I'm incredibly excited to be back in the interviewer seat for Women Who Code podcast, talking to a legend of the annals of the World Wide Web. So welcome. Craig Newmark is a philanthropist who gets stuff done most commonly known for funding, founding the online classified ad service Craigslist, Newmark now creates and funds networks that work to protect the country and to help people out in areas such as building networks to help protect the country in the cybersecurity world, defending against disinformation and fighting online harassment, support for the ethical and trustworthy journalism, particularly in underserved communities, support for veterans and military families, support for groups feeding the hungry, support for organizations advancing women in tech and media, and very importantly, support for pigeon protection. As part of his efforts, Craig serves as a board member for a dozen organizations and a board advisor for several dozen more. So Craig, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm glad to be here. And I'm now intimidated by myself. You sh- As well, you should be. So in 1995, a lot of interesting things happened. I personally was a callow youth and I joined a tiny little startup called Netscape Communications Corporation, which if I'm known for anything, it's probably that. However, most people who Google Tar Hernandez usually will find the Tar Hernandez, who was a writer and producer of Big Bang Theory. So I have more fame by association of name. That is definitely not me, by the way. On the other hand, in 1995, you started curating an email list of San Francisco arts and technology events, which people naturally started calling Craig's List. It was, I think, a year later you turn into a website, which slowly started taking over the country and now has taken over the world. It's what, 70 countries, hundreds of cities. I think it's safe to say that you were one of the first, if not the first internet disruptor as Uber to taxis was Craigslist classified ads. So tell us a little bit about how that got started. What was the original email done like listserv or what, what happened there? You're giving me too much credit for a number of things. Early 95, <laughs> Uh, I had left uh, Charles Schwab, but I observed that a a lot of people in San Francisco had helped me out, for example, uh, settling into the city. So I figured it was time to give back. So at that point, I was starting to work on the early web. But meanwhile, I was using email like Pine character mode. And when somebody told me about an event that usually combined arts and technology, I would send it out. It grew word of mouth, and at first it was a copy list, a CC list, using Pine. Right, I did move to a list server in the middle of 95, and the deal there 
was that when you use a listserv, you got to give the thing a name. As a nerd, I'm very literal, and I wanted to call it the San Francisco events. But people around me told me they were already calling it Craigslist. And I had inadvertently created a brand. They explained to me what a brand is. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't really know. And so the people around me named it. And I put it all onto a major demo and just kept plugging it away. You're right, 96, I'm pretty sure 96, but I have no real records. In 96, I realized that, oh, I'm a programmer. I can write uh, code and I can pipe what happens within Pine into Perl scripts. And I had instant web publishing essentially for free. Back then, I paid no more than 35 bucks a month for web hosting. And that was a bargain. And it was all still pretty low volume. So that all worked out. So in a way, that was the first... Uh, new thing that I had done. I just remembered what I could do and went ahead and did it. But when you switched over to the web-based model, the World Wide Web was still very much in infancy. Obviously, the internet had been around for decades, but this new internet was very nascent. So a lot of email lists like Craigslist, the original version, bulletin board systems or BBSs, mainframe forum communities, thinking like, well, is one kind of notable one from back in the day, they were also starting to wander over to this newfangled HTML thing. The neat thing about Craigslist was not only was it early into the World Wide Web, it was also built using a lot of open source technology. Open source itself was an evolving community of technologies. And I have to say that as part of my Netscape Mozilla experience, we released some of our developer tools as part of the open source. And I am really pleased that we share that early passion for Perl. So Bugzilla was written in Perl, Craigslist was written in Perl. People forget about Perl, but it was pretty cool back then as far as what you could do with it. So tell me a little bit about how you engage with the open source select tool selection. There's Linux was just coming out. There was other things that were just coming out. Were you just playing with things, trying stuff out, copying from others? In a way, what I was doing was uh, all the above. The site in its early years was hosted variously on Solaris or Linux systems. Something about the spirit of open source appealed to me that may have been the influence of the well, since I was a, a very early well user and I was very much influenced by the spirit of open source and of a community. Back then I did use bulletin boards a little. I was on Prodigy, not very nice. long and not very seriously, possibly CompuServe. But the well was the big one for me, the most influential. I still maintain a nominal presence there. But that spirit of community is what mattered. Frankly, it led, when I moved to San Francisco, to the Virtual Reality Special Interest Group, where that spirit was reinforced, the group being way ahead of its time. And even with the group's vision, collectively speaking, is still a little bit ahead of its time, with the hardware and bandwidth isn't still quite there. But that was the beginning of things. And I just maintained that philosophy, used open source, for example, MySQL as well, through that period. And Craigslist itself uh, made some uh, aspects of what had been developed open source. I think that included some web caching. But frankly, at that point, I was doing only customer service not coding. And so I missed a lot when it came to coding. 
I made a number of painful decisions during Craigslist, one of which was to step down from management entirely. I had already given up coding and I realized, let's say early 2000, maybe the end of 99, that as a manager, I suck, turned it over to a Jim Buckmaster and I just went into full-time customer service. So I've encoded for an awful long time. I miss it, but it would be a distraction for me right now. I continue to do customer service, but I'll only do that as long as I live. After that, it's over. Well, unless there's further developments in AI and other technologies. Well, at some point, we I may be introducing Hologram Craig. But later. I, so I was in San Francisco and I lived in, in the rough neighborhood of the original Craigslist. I remember walking past her or taking the bus past it on occasion and thinking, gosh, what a cool thing that they're doing there. And it was such a neat building too. It's an old Victorian house or Edwardian old style. Very, I think, indicative of that community spirit and that San Francisco tech scene at the time that, that you're referring to. But you had been in tech for a long time before then. You were almost 20 years at IBM, if I recall correctly. You were Bank of America at Sun, and then, as you said, at Charles Schwab right before Craigslist. I'm curious, what was your experience with the presence of women in 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 that field in programming, systems engineering, in that phase of your career back in the battle days? It was very surreal and disappointing starting in the early 70s. Early 70s. I was caught up in that wave of feminism. And in the graduate school at Case Tech, Case Western Reserve, Cleveland, there were a number of women, and it seemed like the number was just increasing, which only seemed fair. The operative principle for me is treat people like you want to be treated. And so I thought I saw an increase from there at IBM in Boca Raton. I worked with a number of women. One took over my role when I left Boca Raton for Detroit in 82, but something was happening and I wasn't quite conscious of it, but the number of women in the field started decreasing. I was clueless and generally speaking, I can really be oblivious to a lot of things, but there was a problem with harassment about lack of advancement and so on. And this was happening. I couldn't quite figure it out, but something was wrong and that felt disappointing. It has only been in the last 10 or 20 years that people clued me in. And now I have the resources to do something about it, particularly in cybersecurity, where the opportunities are great for everyone and where I'm supporting major inclusivity efforts, including a number of groups, starting with K through 12 education, like Girls Who Code. And for that matter, the Girl Scouts, and then going beyond that, like the drop the mic effort, uh, women in cybersecurity and so on. So I'm trying to be supportive of uh, coding efforts, but I see the an imperative need in cybersecurity, if for no other reason than to defend the country. And women make up a huge chunk of the population. And so the more the merrier in those efforts. We need everyone who can help to participate it's like World War II. If you had the skills and the time, you were expected to play a role. By the way, I may have a question for you. I think I see a box of Netscape Navigator behind your notebook there, and that would be exciting. 
It's a first ship box, version 1.2, if I recall correctly. When I was at Bank of America, which where I reported to someone named Diana, I played a very small role in home banking, which was being developed on the host side by Netscape Consulting. Yeah, we were trying to touch a lot of different areas back then. I think of all the missed opportunities, <laughs> but that's how tech, that's how tech works. <clears throat> it's funny that you said that you saw women and then you saw less and less. And I had a similar experience. Think about Netscape. And I talk a lot about this. The number of women who are in the engineering organization, I felt was the greatest I have ever seen percentage wise. And some of that had to do, I think, maybe with the predominance of roles that statistically women have had in tech, like QA, for example. We used to, as an industry, invest a lot more in QA than we do now. Now it's all about DevOps automation and we don't need manual testers. But there was also the UI, X, although I think it was called something slightly different back then. But I would say it was maybe not quite half, but it was within spitting distance of half. And then over time, it dropped off precipitously. But it is very frustrating. And as a woman, I was, I think, a lot more cognizant of some of the things that were going on. But it is interesting how socially we can't keep how we are as human beings separate from how we are as employees and coworkers in a way. It, it injects itself despite our best efforts. Yeah. Things change more slowly than we want. I work with the Gina Davis Institute. The theme being is that if you can see it, you can be it, meaning they're trying to get women into more roles in TV and film with the idea of inspiring the very young. My sense is that it's a thing that's working, but it's long-term. I'm not very patient, but sometimes you do have to invest in and wait for the long-term. Absolutely. I can't agree more. And it is. Very frustrating how long, long takes. Let's talk a little bit about that. As you said, you started out mail server or a mail list to early web version to now you have a company and now you're handing off the company except for the customer service part. And Craigslist continues to thrive. I used it a couple of weeks ago to sell to sell an old piece of furniture, which is what it's great for. But the, then you started to move into philanthropy as your full-time job. And first you had a foundation. And then you've ended the foundation and now you've gone into more of this advisory and funding sort of other organization model. What has your path been through that? As part of that kind of finding where your strengths are, like the difference between being a manager versus a customer service person, did that kind of come into play? Last 10 or 20 years, even at Craigslist, nonprofits would come to me, not so much for contributions, but for community building online. And so that evolved over years. But then I started realizing what I'm interested in, what could have a beneficial effect, not only through the country, but on a civilizational basis. So I started learning what could be valuable, started contributing somewhat more heavily in that direction. And then at some point, realizing that I needed to get very serious about this. So I started, at one point, there was something called Craig and X, which was my clumsy and doomed uh, effort to do something really good on a philanthropic basis that became Craig Newmark Philanthropies, which is my way of doing a little umbrella work, including both a foundation and a donor advised fund. The deal is that the way tax rules are structured, it was easiest if I had both 
That way I could uh, give away more money. And it, it is that complicated and counterintuitive. You so wouldn't I think just that start, was hard, yeah. Let's say that uh, there are challenges around that are counterintuitive. Things change a lot. If you do want to give away a lot of money, you need a lot of professional help. And so I've been getting that and it's been working. This is not twistic in any manner. It, this is just what feels right. And as a matter of one's values, this goes back to the big decision I had to make turning Craigslist from a hobby into a company. Prior to that, you go to parties or events in Silicon Valley and VCs and bankers were telling me they'd throw huge amounts of money at me if I did the usual thing and monetize stuff, monetize everything that could be. And I decided I wouldn't do that because I learned in Sunday school to know when enough is enough. And so that's when I decided on a minimal monetization strategy, not out of nobility or altruism, but just what I'd learned in Sunday school resurfaced in my consciousness, in my brain, as well as the notion that you want to treat people like you want to be treated. So I just followed through with what I believed in. And the, the deal is, I've just kept on, kept keeping on, which in a way is the entire history of my philanthropy. It does evolve in terms of focus areas, and you're right, pigeon rescue is one of them, but that's because I love birds and I have a sense of humor. The pigeons, which are outside right now, trying to get us to feed them, they would, they would only encourage me. It, it brings up a comment I see pop up every once in a while where it's like, why does Craigslist still look like it was developed in the 90s? And I'm like, it works. And it's simple and it's lightweight. You think of why would you modernize and start using frameworks that would require more memory, a, a, a beefier piece of hardware? I bet you could still run Craig, Craigslist on a 20-year-old computer with no problem. I think there's a, there's a certain sustainability to that I really appreciate. People sometimes just need a hand getting through the day. Sometimes you got to find a way to put food on the table and sometimes you got to buy a table and sometimes you got to find a roof under which to put that table. You want something which is fast and simple. You want something that, oh, how to use it is obvious. Obviousness is a good design principle and that the current design, which does date back to a 96 or so, it gets the job done because sometimes you want that to happen. It is, as Jessica Lingle points out in a book she wrote, Craigslist is ungentrified. And I like that a lot because sometimes ungentrified neighborhoods, they don't look fancy, nothing upscale, but people get along and they help each other out. And that works for people. And sometimes we need to put the brakes on gentrification. I don't doubt there are many, especially in San Francisco, who would agree with that. So let's go back to some of these organizations that you focus on. And I know the cybersecurity one is a really important one for you. Defense, country defense, reduction of disinformation, I think we can all also agree is pretty important in these days. Availability of technology in general. Part of what you're doing now is facilitating conversations, that whole networking thing that, that you referred to. You're associated with so many different organizations. Do you see people also stepping up, uh, particularly maybe women in the in these roles, expanding that idea of community, 
of common interest, maybe a wider community. That could be your next gift to, to, to the World Wide Web. Don't give me too much credit. In all these efforts, I'm winging it. And that may be working. Well, I have the advantage of in philanthropy of not knowing what I'm doing, but talking with a lot of people and then finding people who are good at stuff to follow through with these things. And as far as I could tell, roughly two thirds or so, maybe more are women. I should uh, conduct a census among the mailing list I run for my grantees. I call it Craig's new list because I'm, I don't have any imagination, but I do have a sense of humor and that seems to work out pretty well. Generally speaking, the people, the people helping me make real things out of the focus areas I support for the most part, if not completely are women. For example, this is true in cybersecurity and a lot of the related disinformation work and oh, is happening in a number of areas of in journalism. Last night in our house, we hosted a dinner for the other project, which is women doing journalism of women across the world. They do a lot of journalism, which appears in publications like the times. The last meeting I did at our place, the last fundraising event we had prior to the pandemic in 2019, that was for the 19th, which is a newspaper out of Austin, which is about women in politics. So without consciously intending to have this focus, it's just worked out that it has just by thinking that I should treat people like I want to be treated. That's expanding in areas like countering harassment. And I have a feeling I'll be surprised as a, well, I'm supporting something called Reporters Mutual, which is about affordable lawsuit insurance in media. And I have a feeling that will become a big deal here. Can you speak a little bit to what that org, I think I can imagine what it does, but can you speak a little bit more to that? There's two parts of it. There's something beginning with the Coalition Against Online Violence, spearheaded by the International Women's Media Fund, PEN America, and Right to Be. They're trying to figure out counter-harassment methods, focusing first on women journalists, because they get it really badly. But also people in journalism, freelancers, small news organizations, are always in danger of getting hit by frivolous lawsuits which can put them out of business. This is what happened to Gawker and somebody went after Mother Jones in this way. And the problem, yeah, the problem with Mother Jones is that the frivolous lawsuit was defeated, but their insurance carrier dropped them. They're now paying, I think, more money for less effective coverage. And there's this thing, Reporters Mutual, partly announced, more is coming, but the idea is that they have uh, funding from USAID, which is a U.S. government foreign aid coming out of the White House, to help protect small operations from bad actors who wish to use the courts to basically kill independent journalism in different cases. And I am involved, although that's pending some announcements, part of the solution 
is to do the announcements in a way that puts some bad actors on notice. That sounds like very important work. The, the Gawker case was definitely really unfortunate on a lot of fronts. And with, with the comment people say, freedom isn't free, it's very trite, but it's also true. And shutting down even questionable conversation is a slippery slope, as we're seeing. On a maybe a more positive front, um, one of the organizations I believe I saw you were affiliated with, or one of the sort of broader themes was around this idea of the Marshall Plan for Women or the Marshall Plan for Mom. <laughs> yeah. And I was looking at that and it put me in mind of a program that Women Who Code partnered with VMware called Tara, not Tara, me, Tara, T-A-R-A, in India. And both of those initiatives were around creating better opportunities for women to be able to take part in the workforce despite being moms and the challenges around coming back from maternity leave or maybe longer-term childcare. What do you think the importance of those types of things are from where you sit and what you've seen? We start with fairness again, treating people like you want to be treated, then observe that our country and through the world, we need certain kinds of resources to make things happen for the workforce. For example, childcare affordable, trustworthy childcare. That's a big component of the Marshall Plan for Moms. And I've talked with the founder of the Marshall Plan, Resma Sojani, about that last week. And that's probably a specific focus. I live in New York now. There's a lot of office space available in Midtown, which maybe is where childcare would do a lot of good. So we're talking about that. And the idea is I can help other people make something real. If I wasn't clear, my deal is that I find people who are good at things and then I provide them with resources to move ahead. The resources generally are a combination of money, influence, and communication. And so childcare for everyone, that's a big part of the Marshall Plan, which makes things happen. I know Reshma because she was the founder of Girls Who Code. And I continue that relationship with a focus on cybersecurity. The deal is that I've been uh, very lucky in now, and I am not interested in being a VC. And I do see some folks who make a lot of money. And then as some people say, they pull the ladder up after them. But my approach instead is to lower more ladders to help more people up. I'm on a bit of a tangent, but I'll just say that one reason I support CUNY, the City University of New York so heavily, is CUNY's success over decades has been helping people grow out of environments where they have no money into the middle class or beyond. And that kind of reflects my own history, not CUNY specifically, but let's say growing up without much discretionary income and now I can do things like buying all the books I want. Oh, and I can, I can subscribe to all the streaming services I want. You've been doing this for a long time, right? You stepped away in the early 2000s, mid 2000s from the I end of the day. I stepped away from management in 2000. And so ever since you've been evolving your your persona now in this next move. And you think about more recently, you have someone, for example, Mackenzie Scott, who very 
flashily and publicly was giving away her billions very quickly, but you've been doing it for decades. Do you think there are more and more people? And what's his name? Berkshire Hathaway. Warren. The Berkshire Hathaway guy. The Berkshire Hathaway guy that we're both blanking on. He's yeah. also very much into giving it away. Do you think that's something that will, an idea that will continue to grow? Or do you think we'll have more of the pulling up the ladder after and vanity projects being the norm? for um, people who are successful in industry. Both are happening. Tenuously, there are people who are not helping out that much. And then there are people who are helping out a great deal. Let's give special credit to folks like Mike Bloomberg or uh, Pierre Omajar and so on. In addition to, I think it's Laureen Powell and Mackenzie Bezos. These things are happening at once. It's all very much in flux. And I guess what I'm doing is, as well as getting out the word for people I support who can get something done, I try to do it in a way that nudges others into helping out more. And I plan to continue that again as long as I live. But after that, probably over. Unless the hologram works out. Yes. <laughs> so for me personally, um, you know, my work at Women Who Code has been very important. I And I love telling the story about how a mutual friend introduced me to Elena Percival, and uh, she pitched her new nonprofit idea over some really good French food. And unfortunately, that restaurant is now gone, but Café Plouffe, you'll live on in infamy. I've been a fan ever since. And this idea that you talked about building community for the benefit of others, we've taken that and gone broad rather than deep. As a supporter of Women Who Code and similar organizations, how do you approach these things? How did you learn about Women Who Code, I guess, first of all, and how did it fit into your kind of broader view of this idea of building a positive internet community or world community? I don't recall, because this is one of those cases where folks from Women Who Code may have approached me, or I noticed what people were doing, and then I approached them. This is a problem when you have a philanthropic effort with zero employees. <laughs> but the idea is that intuitively... You might need well, to get yourself a coordinator. <laughs> I do have in a number of areas. It's quite possible that I conflated girls who code and women who code and just stumbled onto it. This is a thing that happens to me. Again, I have the virtue of not knowing what I'm doing in philanthropy, which is a very effective approach. But the idea of helping people learn how to code seems like a really good thing to me. And it's only a matter of fairness. Although frankly, the industry needs a lot more people who can do the job, but also knowing what goes on with code, knowing how things work in the information arena, that's a kind of power. If you know how things work or have some inklings, you have more control of that and you're less helpless. So that's why I support Women Who Code, for that matter, Girls Who Code, but also related efforts, including Wikipedia. This Wikipedia, for example, has had problems with harassment directed against women editors, so I could help there. Now I'm thinking about, we need a self-instructional education, which would help anyone learn how to do a, how to create a Wikipedia page and how to be aware of community-based ethics involved in doing so. And then from there, you support groups like the Women in Red who are trying to address the balance of 
too little representation of women in Wikipedia. The uh, conversation there is uh, who's considered uh, notable, and that balance needs to uh, change significantly. So I support people who are uh, making that difference in coding, but also in history, because uh, Wikipedia is where facts go to live. So learning to code, learning how to record history, those are forms of power accessible to anyone with basic skills. I could not agree more. That's fantastic. And I applaud the efforts. I remember when things really blew up with Wikipedia around the editorial wars. And I haven't heard anything lately, which I can only hope means that good things are happening. I'll cross my fingers in that regard. I think our listeners will definitely want to know the answer to this very important question. I think I can guess, but I don't want to assume. What is actually your favorite bird? Right now, it seems to be a pigeon who runs our garden and yard called a Ghostface Killer. Ghostface Killer. Okay. Yes. He's a very odd looking bird, dominant in our garden, and it is pretty funny to see him chasing other birds away to provide more space for his favorites to get to the seed, the bird food fast. He is right now, he's very aware of that. There are humans feeding him, particularly Mrs. Newmark, and he's training us to, to feed him and the other pigeons because we live near Washington Square Park. And after he found us, He's invited a number of his pals over, and he's very he's very popular. And we're starting to see a lot of younger pigeons come around who look a lot like him. I see, but hopefully he's not killing any of them. Moniker no. is more okay. No, he seems to be a good provider because we've also seen at times he will back away from the pile of seed, letting his posse have their fill. The only downside is that the doves, the morning doves, have to fight harder, and we need to uh, uh, treat them specially. They can enjoy some of the some of the food. We may have to get bird feeders that doves can fit into, but not pigeons. There you go. There you go. All right. All right. So as we wrap this up, Craig, it has thank you for joining us on the podcast. It has been a delight. And you are continuing on your mission to make the world better. So I'm going to kick it over to you to talk about what's next for you. The deal is I'm Craig Newmark, again, probably best known as the founder of Craigslist. I really believe in the mission of Women Who Code because the deal is that we need to be fair to everyone. We need to empower diverse women in their quest for technology mastery, whether it leads to a career or whatever people choose for themselves. Right now, women only make up about 26% of technology jobs, which means that we're missing out on a huge portion of the population that can really contribute. That contribution can involve unique perspectives and new ways of thinking and new innovations, because that's one way to build the future. If you want to build a future, sometimes the best way is to invent it yourself. That's why on Giving Tuesday, I'll be matching contributions to support Women Who Code up to 75000 So please join me in supporting this important cause. 
we want to build together a technology that's inclusive and representative of everyone. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Thank you again, Craig. And thank you for all that you do for the world, especially around the World Wide Web. It's my pleasure. And as always, a nerd's got to do what a nerd's got to do. Preach, brother. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.